we're in the book of Colossians. That's where we're going straight through. We're in chapter 1 this morning. Uh, and I still don't believe we will get through all of the chapter. I'm, no, I'm in no hurry. Uh, and so uh, we're going to read verses 13 through 20. And then we're going to jump in. <coughs> if you don't have a Bible, there are certainly Bibles just left of Luke. And he would happily give you one if you don't have one. Um, and uh, either way. We actually have them in Swahili and in New Guinea as well. And, um, so, so we won't ask you to read out loud because you might have to go. Okay. Is it the Holy One? <laughs> Excuse me. Verse 13, read along with me. It says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things that are in heaven and on earth, things that are visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were made through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning. Who is the beginning? The firstborn from among the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the gift of this time. Redeem every second of it, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word. I know, Lord, you have great things planned for this time. Please, Lord, do so right now. Please, Lord, bless <clears throat> each precious soul here, myself included. And Lord, I just pray that you would interface with each of us. You know where we're at. You know what we need. We pray, Lord, for those who couldn't make it here today, be it for the snow or otherwise. We pray for Landon and Lauren, Lord, as they look at trying to fly out of here and uh, pilots being concerned about the snow as well and Lord, I'd, I think I'd rather have them more concerned over safety or over-concerned over safety than not concerned at all, Lord. Uh, it would be nice to get Lauren and Landon back, Lord. And, and so, Father, we just pray that you would just guide them to the perfect time uh, that they would be able to depart from the UK. And we just pray, Lord, as we seek to be used by you, as you build this fellowship and create this church, that it would be yours, Jesus, and not mine, not under the banner of Calvary even, or of anything but you, Jesus, that it would be Jesus' church. And so, Lord, have your way now, we pray. We commit ourselves to you. And we just pray, Lord, that you would be enthroned here. We're gathered in your name. We know you're here. May your Holy Spirit have his perfect work, drawing us all into a deeper and more intimate relationship with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. I would say this morning as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. 
everything that you have in front of you is the perfect gauge and the perfect monitor for anything that would be true or counterfeit. Uh, please don't take that lightly. I remind you again, and I'll try to make the, inter- the uh, introduction quick because of our text and how much there is in it. <coughs> Paul is writing to a church he's never been to, a church that he just has been told by Epaphras uh, it has come to know the Lord in the Lycus Valley in the middle of Turkey, western side of Turkey, about 100 miles due east of Ephesus. And he is um, very excited about this church, and he uh, wants to play, wants to, to assert himself as a pastor to just encourage this church that he doesn't know to make sure that they're properly grounded, properly founded. And to be honest, it isn't, what's beautiful is what he goes into and what he doesn't go into in this text. Because there's a lot of things that he could have gone into that he doesn't. <clears throat> he could have said, no, let's make sure this is how the church government looks. Let's make sure that <clears throat> this is how you collect your tithes. Let's just make sure that this is what the worship band looks like or sounds like. Don't you dare use guitars or you better use guitars. Be careful of drums or make sure you've got six hymns or whatever the case is. Keep everything to this particular period of time. I mean, all of the things that, to be honest, are in any handbook today for church growth are none of the things that Paul, for therefore God, addresses in regards to a brand new church plan. And I really like that, to be honest. I mean, if Paul were to write that, by the way, it would be so radically different from what we would see today. Paul certainly wouldn't say that you make sure you have the best and most, uh, most accelerated media of the day. Uh, he wouldn't tell us, make sure you keep the message to 12 minutes. I mean, this was a guy, I remind you, who preached all night. A guy falls out the window dead. Paul lays on top of him. He comes back to life again. He goes back upstairs and goes, now where did I leave off? And continues till morning. This isn't a guy that would tell you 12 minutes. You couldn't tell Jesus keep it to 12 minutes either. And of course, that's going to be one pertinent to us. Um, he's not, he has, nowhere in scripture does it talk about making sure you have a real rock and worship team. Or that you have the best facility. Uh, not that those things aren't bad. It's just those aren't the primary. And we've often said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And what you find is that what Paul wants to make sure is that this is a Christ-centered church. That's what Paul builds on. It isn't saying, Paul doesn't say, no, let's talk about the chairs. Make sure they're padded. Let's talk about the way that you do communion. In regards to how do you hand it out, make sure that the people come up front, make sure you got that cool little plastic wafer or the make sure you break, make sure, whatever the case is, there are just so many things he just doesn't address. But Paul wants to make sure for a church he's never heard of until now, he really just wants to make sure that the church is right. And, and the bottom line is, if it's really founded on Jesus, everything else is kind of kind of work its way out sooner or later. Now, that could be unnerving for a church planner, per se, because they would be the one that would say, well, wait a minute, what about, what about, what about? But you could be so busy what abouting that you really have a beautiful house with no foundation. We found that to be the case where we came from. And in the area where we are, one thing we've learned is that the earth tends to be moving. In our area, gravity is winning and the hills are lowering because all of the dirt is working its way to the ocean. Which basically means that if the house is not firmly planted in rock, all of the basically what you've got is a mobile home. I mean, it's going to take about a time, but sooner or later, every house in Cayucas is going to be oceanfront property. 
because sooner or later, every house will work its way there. And we looked at a house, two-story house. It was Victorian, which made my wife's heart sing. It was beautiful in a million ways, but one thing, but it was strangely cheap at about $500,000. And the reason why it was strangely cheap in our area is because it literally had no foundation. And so the house itself was nice, but you could kind of pick it up and carry it with you. It would have been nice to buy it and try to set it on property here. In all of that, Paul wants to make sure that this thing is built with the right foundation. And he tells the Corinthians, no other foundation can be laid but that of Jesus Christ. So for instance, when Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, I'll build my church, it could not have been Peter because the only foundation that could be laid for the church is Jesus. That's why we have in common with any other church, be that a church that had, tends to hang from the chandeliers or a church that makes sure that it, it, to the moment you're kneeling or standing or sitting or whatever, fight, 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 whatever the case is, every church, the, whatever the sort of practices and liturgical aspects of it, if the foundation is Jesus, we have the most important thing in common. And Paul wants to make sure of that. Beautiful. In these verses, it isn't just that he wants to make sure that the church is built on Jesus, but that the church is built on the right Jesus. You'll find that any Christian church should at least sanely say that Jesus is fundamental for it. But the problem is, there's more than one Jesus out there. There's the biblical Jesus, and then there's the other Jesuses. Now, we even know this from the time that Jesus ascends. In the book of Acts, when Jesus ascends into heaven, after being literally killed, literally resurrected, and literally showing himself to many witnesses, the angels that speak that stand before these men from Galilee on the Mount of Olives, looking up at heaven, say, this same Jesus will return the way you saw him come. Now, the fact that he says this same Jesus tells me there's going to be a lot of other posers and counterfeits out there. As a matter of fact, Jesus warned us of that in Matthew 24 and 25 when he told us that one of the ways you'll know that the end is near is many false Christs will arise. Now, I have a whole list of them, and I could develop that, but it's a senseless thing to spend time with a counterfeit when we have so much beautiful texture about the real Jesus. So either he's the real Christ or he's the counterfeit. And though there are more than seven things, I want to pull out seven things of our text here to make sure you have the right Jesus and to make sure that this fellowship and any fellowship is properly built on this particular fellowship, on this particular Jesus. Will the real Jesus please stand up or rise up? So in verse 13, by the way, we're first of all introduced to the Father. And it says, He, <coughs> that's the Father, <coughs> excuse me, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. This is where this starts. Now notice here that we see an act that God the father is described by an action. Now understand in the Hebrew, every noun comes from a verb. Every word comes from a verb. And every title given to any individual is based first and foremost on what you do. Now, in the Western world, you can hang a sign up that says shoe store before your stock arrives. And people will go, ooh, there's going to be a shoe store there. And there's the paper up in the window so you can't peek in yet, but you just know, ooh, shoes are going to be in that store. And you can walk by it time and time again. You know, sooner or later, that shoe store is going to open. Oh, thank you, Frida. Thank you so much. 
And, and in that, you can have that title. You can actually call yourself anything you want without even having the actions to back it up. You can say, I'm a shoe salesman. Well, I don't necessarily have a shoe store right now, but I'm a shoe salesman by trade. And people go, oh, well, he's a shoe salesman. Or you can say, I'm a, and you can say whatever you want. And basically, as long as you're convincing enough in your delivery of it, people may believe you to be that. But that doesn't work in the, in the Eastern world. <clears throat> it certainly doesn't work in the Middle Eastern world. You are not anything until you live it out. And that is really important. I mean, you couldn't call yourself, if you were to say, I'm a shoe salesman and you don't have any shoes on you, the Middle Eastern world's going to just start laughing and call you a fool because you can't be described by anything unless there's an action to back it up. That is why in the Israel, if you choose, by the way, to go with us on this trip in December, next December, they have two titles for Christians. If you tell someone there that lives in Israel, I'm a Christian, they'll ask, which kind? Because there is a ordinary Christian and a believing Christian. Now, an ordinary Christian in the side of the Middle East is just somebody who basically practices orthodoxy. <clears throat> There's a lot of those. The Egyptians have the Coptic. Um, the Russians have the Russian Orthodox. The Greeks have the Greek Orthodox. But basically, you are a Christian by practice. In other words, what you do at the church, what icons you get behind, what priest represents you, what schism you belong to, what denomination. That kind of thing will be the ordinary Christian in the eyes of the Middle Easterners, because that's the majority of the kind of people that they, hear, they see calling themselves Christians. Then there is a believing Christian, and a believing Christian is a threat to the Middle East, because a believing Christian believes on this Jesus, and therefore it changes their life. As a result of that, they're a threat to the rest of the world because they preach, they share, they have a heart for the lost. They're actually doing things in the name of Jesus. And the, the unsaved world has no problem. The Orthodox, Jewish Orthodox world, the Muslim world has no problem with the just basic Christian in the Middle East. Because to be honest, they're just basically impotent people that are hanging out that are Christian by culture. But a believing Christian is a threat to them because it tends to drain out a lot of their particular group of people because they want to see everybody come to know Jesus. Now, <clears throat> the reason I say that is <clears throat> in verse 13... The father is introduced, notice by what he does. He is the deliverer. He's delivered us from the power of darkness. For what it's worth, the word ra'omai, ra'omai means to transfer or literally to pull away, to hand, to hand off somewhere else. And conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Now, <coughs> first of all, the basic idea of what he's doing. Deliverance is a very important word because, by the way, for what it's worth, deliverance is unique to Christianity. <clears throat> and everything else in the world, we're looking at removal. We want to get you out of a lifestyle, out of a practice, out of a habit. But it really is less concerning of where you're going to go as long as you're away from where you started. And that becomes the basic mindset of the world. If you can follow this many steps or go with this particular program or whatever the case is, we'll pull you out of the world you came from. But Christianity isn't about pulling you out of the world you came from. God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of. And that is so fundamental because God doesn't just want you out of a bad lifestyle. But that is the way that the world will view Christianity because that's the way the world works. So that's why, if you think about it, that's one of the reasons why people say, well, I'm a good person. 
because I've been kind of removed from my nasty lifestyle and I'm a relatively good person. I don't sleep around as much as I used to. I don't drink as much as I used to. I don't do as much drugs. I'm a relatively good person. I mean, I'm, I'm farther away from where I was. I mean, that's kind of like saying, look at, I'm not necessarily as much of a plumber as I used to be, but I still have a bit of poo on me and I still smell when I come home and I still am contagious, you know, and, and, but I'm not as contagious because there's still parts of me that aren't as dirty as they used to be. Jesus had warned us about this when he talks about a spirit being driven from a house. Now he speaks about the house being a human being. And he says, when that spirit is driven from a house, it seeks a place of rest, but finds none, comes back to the place where it was before. And if, that, if it finds that individual, that house swept and in order, it gets seven worse than itself. And it says, I'll return to where I came. And the condition of that person is worse than it was before. You'd say, well, wouldn't it be enough to be swept in an order? Not in God's economy. God is not about cleaning you up. Cleaning you up is part of the product of what God intends. What's important to God is your relationship with him. Your relationship with him will clean you up. But if all you're looking for is cleaning up, you're in bad trouble as a result of it. No, there are people that are like, look, I'm just thankful I used to do this and I used to do that. Man, I was so bad. I used to hit nuns and kick children and throw puppies. That was my lifestyle, you know, and in and, and all of that. And it's like, no, I don't. But they won't tell you I do this on the side and I'm addicted to this and this is the other stuff. But at least I don't do what I used to. And beloved, that's what we set ourselves up with. If that's what we think is going to happen. But Jesus isn't into removal. He's into deliverance. And the Father is the delivering is the deliverer. Jesus is the delivering agent. <clears throat> now let me ask you, as a Christian, honestly, is your life about removal or deliverance? Because the Father's about delivering. If you've been delivered from, what have you been delivered to? Before I gave my life to Christ, <clears throat> I'm sure this is going to surprise you. I was a bit of a crazy person. I lived kind of full on. I know that's a shocker. I mean, <clears throat> there were very little, if any, limits to what I wouldn't do. And I remember giving my life to Christ and asking the Lord, Lord, could you make me normal? Could you just make me just a nice, ordinary, fit in the world, blend in the world kind of person? And the Lord pulled me aside. He said, who do you think made you that way? And then he showed me Peter. He said, what kind of person was he before he gave his life to me? And I said, he was a rambunctious, <coughs> impulsive, wild man. He says, now what kind of person was he after I got a hold of him? Oh, he was kind of a rambunctious, impulsive, wild man for you. He said, well, what makes you think I would make you any different? And the reason I say that is, is that I was just looking to be removed from that. But God was looking instead to deliver me <coughs> into what I was owned by was the power of darkness. That's what it tells me here. Look at it. He has de delivered us from the power of darkness. Not just from darkness. Now here's the difference. Delivering me from darkness would mean that now things just are no longer dark. Delivering me from the power of darkness is a different thing. Now if God the Father is uniquely the deliverer, that would mean that anyone who hasn't accepted God's delivering agent, who is Jesus, is still not in darkness only, but is in the, under the power of darkness. The people that are out there right now that have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, 
are under the power of darkness. Now listen, <coughs> in Acts chapter 26, as Paul is speaking about the mission that God had called him to, and he tells us, to deliver, to open the eyes of the blind in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. It's classic Hebrew parallelism. To be under the power of darkness is to be under the power of Satan. And Jesus tells us in John 10 that Satan has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. Now hear me out. To be under the power of darkness is to be under the power of the one who has come to steal you, kill you, and destroy you. And I think back on my life, <clears throat> you can do this in your own life, but to steal the truth right out from me. How I would hear things that were the truth. Of, matter of fact, one of the first gals that I knew as a teen that I thought was ridiculously wise was actually a backslidden Christian. I didn't know it at the time. So when she would say things, what she was saying was scripture. And I was like, wow, that's brilliant. I'd never heard anything like that before. She wasn't giving credit where it was due. I don't think she even knew because she was just raised in an environment. I, on the other hand, had never heard anything like it. I just thought, wow, that's amazing. But it was amazing how the heart has a terrible habit of making a convert of the mind. That makes sense. And even though that information was brilliant, it still wasn't going to change me because my heart was so sold on sinning. I realized how the enemy, like the birds of the air, come to steal the seed right from the wayside heart like my own used to be. To kill me? Why is it that smoking is so popular? Why drinking is so popular? Why drugs are so popular? If you think about it, when you realize what they do is they kill you. Now understand, I'm a person whose older brother was rolled over in a pool of blood by his own overdose. I know that drugs kill. I've watched a close friend of mine when I was a teenager as I was seeking to pull him out of a swollen river, let go of my hand because he was hallucinating and thought my arm was a snake. I was the last person he looked at. He looked me straight in the face and screamed, snake, as he let go and was sucked under. That was the last moment alive that boy had. I know that drugs kill. I watched a friend of mine be convinced there weren't steps at the school that I was at and step out and tumble to his death down a flight, two flights of steps in front of his school as his brains were bashed open. And forgive me for being graphic. Drugs kill. I watched an uncle rot himself to death because of cirrhosis of the liver because alcohol kills. I've watched my mother smoke herself to death. I've watched her from a vibrant, fiery woman to a brittle frame of a skeleton. I know that smoking kills. It's not just a sign on a cigarette box. I've watched licentious sexual life kill people as I've watched people whittle away to nothing as we've prayed with individuals dying of AIDS in their deathbeds. I've watched individuals look me straight in the face and say I'm dying from a disease that clearly had only been obtained and they will confess it because of their sexual lifestyle. Why is it so enticing? Why do we run to these things? 
because without Christ, we're under the power of darkness. Not just under darkness, but we're under the power of it. And Satan comes to steal and kill, but also destroy. You see, it's more than just that he comes to kill us. He comes to destroy everyone else around us, worse yet, with us. I know what it's like for somebody to look me straight in the face and to know that the reason for their great pain was me. I know what it's like to look in the face of an individual and know that all of their destruction was somehow funneled through me. I know what it's like to try to run and to know that I can't even run from myself, knowing that the greatest problem was not Satan, it was me now. I was the smoking gun. I was the cursed thing. I was the weapon that hurt others. There's nowhere to go to run from yourself. And the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I clearly was under the power of darkness. And so were you. Now you may not know it, but now you do. And this father saw us under that power. Stolen from his own arms being killed slowly in front of the Father. And you're not important to Satan. Satan doesn't look at you and think this is because the only reason why you have any value to Satan is because he hates God and he knows something more than we do. And that is how much God loves us. And he knows that God loves us so much that if he really wanted to hurt God, all he has to do is hurt you. And to be honest, I never knew that as deep as I do now until I had children. Nothing hurts me more than seeing three women that I love in pain. Nothing. I would gladly have my arms sawed off without Novocaine or any form of anesthesia if it meant that they would never have to experience any form of grief in front of me. And the enemy knows that. And the enemy knows that in his hatred for God, in his competition with God, that if he really wants to hurt him, all he has to do is make you suffer. And we were under his power. But that's not the end of the story. In 2 Samuel 22, verse 10, it tells us, by the way, David singing his swan song, that when the Lord God came, that he came with darkness under his feet. Darkness is not something to be feared in Jesus' eyes. In John 1, 5, it says that the light shone in the darkness, but the darkness could not comprehend it, is maybe the way you have it in your scripture. The term is catalambajo. And catalambajo, or lambojo here, <coughs> lambano, it means, kata means according to, and lambano means to get a hold of. It's literally a wrestling term. Though the light shine in the darkness, darkness could not get a wrestling hold, couldn't get a grip on it. Darkness had no power to take down light. We read in 1 John 1, 5 that God is light and in him is no darkness. Jesus is come, he says, in John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me shall not dwell in darkness. The way out of this is to believe in Jesus and his gift on, it, on the cross. As a result of that, we have a choice to make. The verdict, according to John three nineteen, is that men loved darkness. They loved it and wouldn't come into the light because their deeds were evil. But Jesus says, if you believe in me, I can pull you out of it. 
here's the worst part. Darkness is a place where you just don't know. It's a place of hatred, according to 1 John 2.11. It's a place of blindness. Because the darkness has blinded our eyes. We don't even know that we're killing ourselves. We don't even know how we're hurting others. We don't even know how we're slowly on the road to our own destruction. But God does. And we'll even love that which kills us. But not God. He loves us too much for that. The reason he hates our sin is because he loves us. The reason he hates what destroys us is because he loves us. No wonder why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Look at you're now no longer darkness. You're children of light, therefore walk as children of light. Walk like it. It's no surprise why then. God will challenge us in 2 Corinthians 6.14 to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is why you don't marry a believer to an unbeliever. Because he says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What do you have in common? In 2 Peter 2.17 and in the book of Jude verses 6 and 13, it tells us that those angels that have wandered from their dominion with the Lord are reserved, listen, for the chains of darkness. Lastly, in regards to darkness, it is a place of bondage. And that's what the Father has delivered us from. But he didn't just remove us from that power, from that dominion. He removed us from it to the kingdom of his Son, whom he loves. That's the beauty of this, beloved is that now we're no longer in this power of destruction. Now we're no longer destroying ourselves. And now we're no longer of curse to others. Like he said to Abraham, I'll make you a blessing. Man, that means so much to me. If I didn't believe this, I would never have gotten married and I certainly would never have had children. The fact that God in chapter 12 of Genesis says, I'll make you a blessing to Abraham. And I believe that offer is to anyone who will call out to him. He wants to make you a blessing, beloved. Not just a zero. A zero is somebody who didn't do bad, or used to do bad things, but doesn't anymore. He wants to make you a plus now, a blessing. And you won't be that if you don't let him do what he wants to do. He's delivered you out of darkness, but into the kingdom. Out of the power of darkness, into the power of, of God's kingdom. A kingdom that turns you into a blessing, and an encouragement, and a good thing. I look around this room and I tell you, I see good things, good things that God has placed. He wants to use you to change the world. And that's where this starts. And this isn't just his son, the son by relegation, his son by requirement, but rather his son that he loves. Notice what it says there in verse 13. And now he develops who this son is in verses 14 through 20. Quickly, first of all of these seven, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is, the first of them is, he is our payment. If Jesus isn't your payment, you don't have the right Jesus. If the church doesn't show Jesus as the payment for your sins, for your guilt, you have the wrong Jesus. And to be honest, you have the wrong church. That is the first thing he introduces Jesus as here to make sure that this church is founded on the right Jesus. Jesus is, and the word here for redemption, for what it's worth, is a word that simply means the act of ransoming in full. 
apelutrosis. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, it says, Do you not know that your body now is the temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you? You're from God now. You're not, listen, you're not your own. You don't belong to you. You were bought out of it, out of the power of darkness. And he says, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body and in your spirit, which now belong to God. If I were to get a dog, it's safer to say that because Ruthie isn't here at the moment. And in that dog, from, from birth, we got that dog and that dog belonged to us. And we even named that dog Holiday because that's our last name. And we just, here comes Holiday. And that dog was just rambunctious and fun and whatever. And, you know, Ruthie, of course, is squealing because he's so happy or whatever. We're not, by the way, so don't expect that. But let's just say hypothetically, we have a dog. And all of a sudden, that dog, though rambunctious and things that puppies are, decides to get loose, finds its way out of the gate, and off it heads out. And it is now out somewhere. And somebody else takes a liking to that dog. And they just decide that they name that dog Butch now because that's what they named. So though it was holiday, now it's Butch. And that dog now is tearing up somebody else's house. And that dog bites someone else. And that dog does all kinds of rotten and nasty things. And that guy now decides he's just going to kill Butch. Because he's just sick of Butch and Butch's trouble. And we look and go, that's our dog. No, it's not. That dog has lots of debt is what that dog is. We should have named that dog Bills because that's what that dog is now. But if we really wanted that dog, we would not only buy the dog from its owner, we would pay the bills of the things in which the dog is done to make a mess. We'd pay for the hospital bills or the, the, the doctor bills of the person the dog has bit. We'd pay for whatever it was that was damaged because of this dog being a dog. Because dogs are dogs. All the more the case with our father and us. But that payment was his son. That's what we read in verse 14. We on our own chose to run from the pen that we were created to be in. The place of love and a place of warmth, a place of care. A place that we're lavished by care and, and appreciation and great value. And we decided to run out because we wanted to be free. And in running out, we were free to bite someone else. We were free to tear up someone's whatevers. We were free to create a mess and just foul all over the place. And to be honest, uh, you can make that decision on your own self of how honest you want to be about yourself. And myself, I'll be honest to tell you, that was very much the story of my life. I was fouling all over the place. There is just piles of me all over, piles of my own mess. But God, to get me back, didn't just kidnap me from all that. I ran out on my own. In order to get me back, he bought me back and the price was his son. And that not only because being under the power of darkness and under the dominion of Satan, that was what Satan demanded. But also that was the price to pay for all of the other damage that I had done as a result of being quote unquote free. Is Jesus your payment? The other side of it, by the way, is, oh, I'm going to be a good person. I'll go to church enough. I'll do all of these other things. I'm my own payment. But that puppy couldn't buy its way out as much as we couldn't buy our way out either. A church founded on the right Jesus will be one that's founded on Christ as our payment. Second, it says, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. The second thing Jesus is, the, by the way, the word for image is the word icon. It's where we get the word icon from it. It literally means picture. He's a picture of the Father. In John 14, verse 9, it tells, Jesus says to his own disciples, 
Because Philip had said, well, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. He said, if I've been with you so long that you don't know me, Philip, he who has seen, the, seen me has seen the Father. Now, this is really important because even in the church general, there's this dichotomous teaching that there's this sort of good cop, bad cop. The Old Testament Father God of the Old Testament, right? He's sort of the bad cop. He's angry and mean and grumpy and vengeful and da-da-da. Then there's the Jesus warm, fuzzy, wants to pick up the sheep and put them on his shoulders and wear them like a stole. And it's like kind of like, I like the son, but the father, he's kind of, you know, stay away from him. He's kind of cranky. Truth be told, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, then there's no dichotomy. He's the same God. And if that's the case, then our Father loves us. And to be honest, that is so fundamental because many of us don't even know what it's like to have a role model as a father until we get to the scriptures. And you realize, if our Heavenly Father is just as grumpy or mean or nasty or whatever, or aloof and unengaging as the earthly fathers that so many of us have known, well, then who wants to, who wants to be adopted by that guy? But the Father... In Scripture is a loving, embracing, engaging Father. And we know that because Jesus is the image of that invisible God. So the second thing he is, is a picture. Now, if you don't have this Jesus, then you have the wrong one. And you have the wrong church if that's the church you're going to. Third thing. He says he is the firstborn over all creation. Oh, a little bit of information is a dangerous thing. And one of the most dangerous things we can do is to culturalize terms. All you're doing is redefining them. And firstborn is a classic one. Now, we think of firstborn as basically just being the oldest. Because is there any specialness, if I can use that word, to a firstborn in our culture? Well, in the Middle East, firstborn is a very important thing. As a matter of fact, the firstborn doesn't even have to be born in your house. doesn't even have to be of your own gene pool. Should be, but isn't always. The firstborn has specific responsibilities. Let's say it this way. Let's say I have three sons, my three sons, David, Luke, and James, which are nice because they're all biblical names. <laughs> really nice. King David, King James, which isn't, of course, the biblical James. But the same. Anyway, so, and, you know, gospel writer Luke. <coughs> and let's just say of the three, we'll see, which one of you is the oldest? I have to figure that out. Lucas, way to go, oldest. First of all, Luke has the responsibility of my burial. Luke will, first of all, I mean, when I kick it, you're responsible because my burial takes a year. I mean, remember, you got to put me, you got to put me in a big old thing called the sarcophagus, sarc meaning flesh, ficus meaning eater. So it's a flesh eater. For a big year, because space is limited in Israel. There, you can fit 19 Israels in California alone. That gives you an idea how small it is. So, um, Israel as a whole, and that's the bigger one now versus the pre-67. Well, so you, you can't fit big, long caskets in Israel. So, what you do is you have a year where you are put in this sarcophagus. And then after that year... All the bones get to fit in a smaller box called an ossuary, a bone box, because all you have to be now is bigger than my biggest, longest bone, which is my femur, and wider than my widest bone, which is my skull. So you can fit all of that together. And Luke will not get all of my inheritance until he does that. But because he's my oldest, he gets an extra portion of my inheritance. That's one of the benefits of being my oldest. As a result of that, 
I would not break my inheritance into three parts, which means that you guys don't just get my bills equally, since I have nothing to give you other than that. Um, you break it into four. So four parts. So in other words, Luke is going to get half of my inheritance, but he won't get that inheritance until he gives me a proper burial, at least the last half of it. That, by the way, really brings light to a text in the Gospels. If you've ever heard when a man says to Jesus, I will follow you, but let me first go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And you go, boy, that sounds so harsh. Not if what the guy is saying is, I'm just a week away, Jesus, from taking my dad's bones and sticking them in a smaller thing, and I get the rest of the inheritance. I'm this close. And Jesus is like, pick your inheritance, boy. Do you want to follow me, or do you want to get that instead? And by the way, being a pastor, as long as I have, I can tell you, I've seen a lot of people that are like, I'm this close, but they never really follow Jesus. Because there's always something on the other side of that rainbow looking for them. Well, so he has the responsibility of my burial. He also has the responsibility, by the way, of, of um, excuse me, <coughs> of my family trade. So let's just say I am a shoemaker, since that seems to be the trade of the day. Um, Luke will then carry on that family occupation. He will also, by the way, carry on the family honor. In other words, if, this, if the neighborhood around here respects the name Holiday, Luke will be the one to carry on that family honor. They will look, and, and if David, and somehow someone just assumes that some of the younger kids are going to be punks, but the oldest one, you should expect him to be so. And that, or you could be great. So there is that responsibility. So the family occupation, the family honor, and the family name all go to the oldest. And as a result of that, he is second in command. He is the one then who is the principal overseer of the house when I leave. Now listen, if you remember in the story with Abraham and God promises him a son, first of all, before even Ishmael, he offers his oldest servant named Eleazar. Let him be my firstborn. Now that's not anyone from Abraham's gene pool. He's just his oldest servant. And if you don't have any sons, most often your oldest servant takes that place. He's then the one who watches the family. He's the principal overseer of the household. He's the one who makes those laws when you're not around. Because the dad is often gone doing business and he's the one who oversees the house. Now that's really important. Because there are some that want to try to say Jesus is created and they use this particular term, firstborn for it. Well, if he's firstborn, he must be created. Actually, no, what's a title? Jesus is the firstborn we read here over all creation. That doesn't mean he's the first one born. It just means he has now that responsibility over all creation. All creation submits to Jesus because he is the principal, and that's our third thing. He is the principal overseer over all things. Everything then is responsible to the principal. And that is, well, Luke in this case, Jesus as fundamental. And if Jesus is not principal, you have the wrong Jesus. If he is little Jesus, big Mary, if he is little Jesus and big doctrine, little Jesus and big periodical, little Jesus, but our big leader profile character, then Jesus isn't the right one. He is by far the one thing that all creation submits to. And if he's not that, then you got the wrong one. Verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, dominions, thrones, principalities, or powers. The fourth thing is he is the producer. The Bible says, by the way, there is not anything made that Jesus didn't make in John. 
Now that's important because Jesus could not be created if everything that was created came after Jesus. Figure that one out for yourself. Jesus is eternal. Eternal past, eternal future. We, by the way, are eternal future, but we're not eternal past. We had a beginning. We had a start. God knitted us together and created us. But Jesus was never created, and he is the producer. But what gets me real excited, by the way, for what it's worth, these principalities, power, mights, and dominions, God makes special note of those things, like those things can't separate us from the love of God in Christ. Romans 8, perhaps you're familiar with that. We read, by the way, in Colossians chapter 2, that Jesus disarmed all principality, power, might, and dominion. And why? Because he created them. Everything, every demon, Satan included, has to submit to Jesus because Jesus is the principal and he's their creator. But more beautiful, in my opinion, than that is, is the fifth of these seven things. Remember, the fourth is producer. If Jesus isn't our creator and he's just created, well, then you have the wrong Jesus. So when someone comes to my door and says, let me talk to you about how Jesus was created, I'm like, well, you got the wrong Jesus. It says, notice the last part of verse 16, and this is so beautiful. All things were created by him and for him. Now, like it or not, you're a thing. You fit into that category of the nouns. Well, you're a person if you want to do it that way, but the bottom line is you're a thing, you're a noun. And if you fit into the things, you were not only created by Jesus, you were created for him. And if you were created for him, you will never be satisfied. By the way, you'll never be appreciated to the degree you were created for until you fulfill what you were created for. The number five thing is you that Jesus is the purpose. Now look at This is T. Now, I have a tea. I like my tea perhaps a little different than you do. First of all, I'm a sucker for spicy things. Um, I can't remember the last time I had something too spicy. Matter of fact, I will gladly, um, at least with my mouth, let me just say it that way. Um, <clears throat> the rest of my body, yeah, well, we will go there. <clears throat> now, the tea that I might make, I actually have a specific tea at the tea house where we're at. It involves chili powder and cinnamon berries and the whole bit. And... Uh, it is, um, I very much like it. Now, you could, I, I, I made it for me. I didn't make it for you. I made it for me. If I made a tea for you, I won't make it this way. I know if I'm going to make it for you, for instance, for Suzanne, it would be sweeter perhaps. or Well, not necessarily sweeter, but it'll be their specific thing she likes. David, I'd make it taste more like coffee. Um, <coughs> so I'll just put some dirt in it and a few others. But um, with all of that said, if I made it for me, you won't enjoy it as much. Because it wasn't made for you. You won't appreciate it as much. Because it wasn't made for you. And you can look at it and you can smell and go, What's this? Ooh, this smells spicy. I hate this. I don't like this. If the tea decided, you know what? I really don't want to be tea. I want to be eyewash. That's what I want to be. I think that's what I'm called to be. And everyone's going to know. And I'm just going to be eyewash. And then it, it, it throws itself, if it had a will and an ability, it throws itself in some form, a little tube, and, and you know that says, you know, eyewash. And you just start putting it in your eyes. And you just ball on your eyes. And you're like, ah, I hate this. What's wrong with you? You're messed up. You're hurting me. What's wrong with you? And you're like, no, 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 that's not what I want to be. I want to be icing on a cake. You know, I'm closer to it. And so I'm going to cover myself on a cake. And someone starts eating cake. The cake started out good, but this is terrible. What's wrong with you? 
And that becomes much of our lives because we were created for a specific purpose, made a specific way for a specific purpose, but we're busy jumping off the table trying to be something else. And we will never be content. We will never be satisfied, nor will we even be successful if we're not going to be what we were created for. And according to this, we were created for Jesus. We weren't created for his amusement, though we could easily be amusing to him. We were created for his intimacy. He wants to be with you. That's what he created you for. And if you are going to try to live a life without him, you will never be satisfied. And if you don't have a Jesus, the Jesus as your purpose, you got the wrong one, baby. You're just Bad eyewash and terrible icing. You're the, I'm just someone's gift. I'm God's gift to people. Now you actually, listen, you're God's gift to God. That's the coolest part. The one thing God really wants to unwrap for Christmas is you. He wants to unwrap your grave clothes, your nastiness, your flesh, so that he can enjoy you. You're his gift. He is before all things, verse 17. And in him all things hold together. Which, by the way, I do love this. He is definitely the bond that holds things. By the way, for what it's worth, there is a particular website called Ask the um, Astrophysicist. Some super experienced, classic, you know, intelligent guy that likes to speak smart. And you can ask him all kinds of questions of the universe. And one of the questions, of course, is what holds all things together? Here's his answer. These molecules are held together by intermolecular forces. Now, that sounds smart. Do you know what that means? That means these little atoms are held together by something in between those atoms that forces them to stay together. An example is the peptide bond that links amino acids together. Now, you know what a peptide bond is? That's basically an invisible force that holds amino acids together. What holds them together? Well, this force, this invisible force, that we're just going to call an intermolecular force. That just means it's in between two things. It says, it links amino acids together. This bond is formed when atoms like hydrogen and oxygen and carbon and nitrogen share electrons. They all of a sudden decide to share something in common, part of this. This molecular bonding is governed by this electrostatic force. This amazing force I can't see, but somehow in it, this amazing force holds it together. Which on small scales is even much stronger than the gravitational force of charged particles. And he calls it cosmic glue. What is cosmic glue? It is, according to this text, Jesus. Jesus is the force that holds all things together. As we read in this, he is before all things and in him all things consist or literally hold together. Sunistomy. Asumi means to stand, soon means together, to stand together. For Jesus to explode the universe, as they talk about splitting atoms, where they, of course, you're probably aware to split an atom, all you're trying to do is you're trying to pull the thing that orbits away from the, the, the nucleus. Because all you're trying to do is you're trying to remove that invisible force that holds those two things together. And when that happens, tremendous force is exerted. When one atom, the electron is pulled away from the nucleus, it's such an amazing thing 
that you can heat a thousand homes with it or blow up a thousand people. That's one atom. When this force that holds this, uh, this electron to this, this neutron, when it holds it together, is removed. We read that the entire universe is reserved for great heat. Now think about all he, Jesus has to do. All he has to do is, in essence, just remove his cosmic glue. All he has to do is go, done. And every, every atom is that force is removed. And the force exerted will blow up the sun. Just you alone, just Ruthie, the size of Ruthie, if all of her atoms were to explode, they could be felt towards the end of the universe because of the amount of atoms that she contains. I mean, Pluto, whether you want to call it a planet or not, would feel the impact of Ruthie if all of her atoms, if the cosmic glue were removed. Shantae? Oh, way beyond the Milky Way. That's the whole point of it. Now imagine all the atoms of the world being removed from this. And people are like, Jesus, I want you out of my life. I don't want this Jesus. I don't want this God you're preaching. I'm like, look at you really do want Jesus in your life because he holds all things together. And if your life is falling apart, it sounds to me like even your life needs more consistency. It needs more Jesus. If you're like, why does this area always seem to fall apart? Listen, the world is under the law of entropy. You know that the second law of third dynamics, which just says that order comes to disorder. Things that are held together fall apart. I mean, I'm still on the hunt for many of my socks. I don't know where they've gone. You know, I mean, you'd think in this house, they'd have to go somewhere. There is definitely a, foc, a, a sock fairy somewhere stealing my socks. I'll look. Oh, are you throwing them back there again? Okay, well, problem solved. Anyways, <laughs> the, whole, the whole world is falling apart because it is under the laws of entropy. It's a natural thing. You are a supernatural thing, beloved. And if you want to submit yourself to this world and you want to be governed by this world, it's going to fall apart. But you can submit yourself to the one who holds all things together. Let's wrap this around and close it. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. And we've talked about the firstborn. And him that he may have preeminence. Now listen. The head. Now God could have used a lot of titles here. Now there's a head like a leader. There's a word for that in, Hebrew, in Greek. And then there's a word like kephale. The word means literally your head. Now, as the body is described, or the church is described as the body of Christ, I'd like you to think about how God invented your head. First of all, how much of your identity is found in your head? I mean, when we look at a yearbook and we see all of the pictures, it isn't like we see a lineup of feet. We go, oh, I remember those feet. They were so pretty. You know? Or we see a bunch of elbows. Oh, that elbow, that elbow hit me a lot. I remember that elbow. We see faces because that's the one thing that will help us remember who was who. At least as much as anything will. Your identity is found in your head. I mean, unless you have a really, really weird shape about you or something extremely unique, like your feet are like size 125E, it's a pretty good possibility your face will be the most distinguishing characteristic, as should be Jesus in the church. Not some pet doctrine, not some pet banner. We should not be known for what we stand against more than what we stand for. 
It doesn't say they'll be known by their guns or they'll be known by their picket signs. They'll be known by their love, one for another. Now, but also, of the five senses that are given to you, think about that. How many of them are found on your head? All five. Your sight, your smell, your touch, your taste, your hearing. Every one of those is found on your face. And they're used for guidance. Your sight is a good guidance factor. Your ears are a good guidance factor. And when your sight and your ears aren't functioning well, your toes tend to be the guiding factor. Like your toes are there to find furniture in the dark. I mean, that's what happens, right? You're stumbling over things because your eyes and your ears aren't leading you like you would. But a, well, that's two eyes. That's the same sense. But think about what happens when you can't see or hear and you try to get somewhere. What happens next? What is your next guiding factor? Your sense of feeling. Your hands go out, don't they? Like this. And you're like wanting to try to make sure you don't run into anything. Because you, I mean, unless you're weird and like pain, it's normal that what you're trying to do is keep yourself from it. You know? And then you use your sense of feeling on the steps. You're going, I know I'm getting near steps here. And you're going, um, um, that's a step down. And at least in this house, for whatever reason, that last step's a doozy. Almost everybody misses it sooner or later because we just get confident that it's not there. And, and we find out, sadly enough, it is. And then we use that sense of feeling in a painful way that reminds us. Our rear end tells us, don't do that again. Jesus should be the primary identifying factor and our primary, our guiding factor. A church that has lost the headship of Jesus will be a church that will be led by its feelings. Because it's the only sense left. And you'll find churches like, I just feel, but it's not just a church. It's a believer, isn't it? If you do not have the, the headship of Christ in your life, he is going to, you're going to be led by your feelings. I just feel, and that's the world, beloved. Why do you think that all of the ads are like, I mean, and you see these things and they're just cruel, right? It's a kid in a wheelchair and it's up there and it says, given, it says, go ahead and walk away. He wishes he could too. You think, how cruel, because they're trying to get that sense of feeling because it's the only thing that leads you anyways. Yeah, and, but you realize, as a Christian, we are led by the head. And it's not you, praise God, and nor is it me, praise God. I'm not the head of this church. I never will be. And praise God, because you have the perfect head for the church, and that's Jesus. This Jesus, this real one, the biblical one. Some people say, you believe in that Jesus? I believe in the one of the Bible. I don't know which one you think of, which you've heard. Number six, then, is preeminent. That just means he's the first. He's the primary. He is the pre preeminent in regards to our, who, our identity. He's preeminent in regards to our leadership. And finally, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth, things in heaven, having made peace by the blood of his cross. The last thing is he is perfectly God. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Not just some. Jesus isn't mostly God. He isn't a vast majority God. He is perfectly God. He didn't attain Godhead. He didn't get down and eat granola and yogurt on a mountaintop and a moo-moo and just wait for the sort of divine spirits to touch him so he could ascend it to Christship or to some consciousness. He started as God. He remains God. He will continue as God. 
And that's a beautiful thing. Any other Jesus is the wrong one. So when somebody says, I believe in Jesus, I'm like, well, which one? Well, which one? What do you mean, which one? I'm like, well, the real Jesus or one of the other ones? That's a really fun question to go into with people. Well, I believe that Jesus is a prophet. I'm like, do you believe he's God? No. Well, then you don't believe in the real one. Well, what do you mean? Because Jesus himself called himself that. Do you believe that he's actually your payment for your sins? Oh, I'm trying to do it by my good works. Well, then you don't have the right Jesus. You have an impotent, measly, weak Jesus. You can't make better perfection than perfection in Jesus. He's perfectly so. Is he your payment? Is he the picture of the perfect God? Is he principal in everything? Is he the producer, your creator? Is he your purpose? Is he preeminent? Is he perfectly God? Because if he is, then you've got the right one. As we go to prayer, I just want to pray that this Jesus would be the one that we believe in. And we rightly respond. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you. Father, I want to thank you for being our deliverer. Delivering us from the power of darkness. Conveying us into the kingdom of your son. The one you love. Your beloved son. And I openly confess as creed, Jesus, you are my payment. And if you are my payment, then I am not my own. I belong to you. You are my ransom, my redeemer, my redemption. Thank you for paying the price for my guilt on the cross, dying on the cross and raising again on the third day. I also know that you are the picture of the Father so that I know that, Father, you are not grumpy, mean, nasty, and Jesus, you're just something nice. This isn't a good cop, bad cop. You are the same yesterday, today, forever, Jesus, and you are one who is a friend of sinners. You are strength to the weak, hope to the hopeless, and a way where there's no way. And so, Jesus, I want to respond properly by making sure that <coughs> I, I give my life to you openly and seek to have that intimate relationship with you and the Father. Jesus, you are principal, firstborn over all creation. You are the one I'm responsible to. You are my authority. I submit to you as my Lord. And so, Lord Jesus, be principal in my life. And as you are my creator, my producer, I am accountable to you. But as you are my purpose, then, Lord, I was made for you. So without you, Lord, I'll never be satisfied. I was made for you. May I live the life you created me to be. And as you are preeminent, and preeminently my priest, I pray, Lord, that you would have your rightful place in my life. You make the decisions, not me. You be my identity. You be my leader, my guidance. And as you're perfectly God, I worship you that way. Not just as someone that's better than others, but the King of kings and Lord of lords the living God. And so I pray, Jesus, that as I openly again confess my acceptance of your gift on the cross for me and your resurrection to offer me new life, give me a heart, Lord, for those right now who are still under the power of darkness. As you've conveyed me, Lord, into Father, into the kingdom of your Son, your beloved Son, 
And the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And you've delivered me from that into <coughs> Jesus' kingdom. Father, I pray that I would have a heart to see others delivered. Not just removed from an irritating or a deleterious lifestyle, but truly redeemed the way you intend. So Lord, have us today, this week, this life. May it be to your pleasure, your delight. In Jesus' name.